Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when I say beauty is terror, I do mean that it can be terrifying and it is a terrible thing for what it's used for. But, you know, it's a tool like anything else and you need to know how to use it. Hi, everyone. It's Kirby. Welcome to Los Angeles. Wow. November 3rd, 2020. What a day. I am saying the date because I want to be able to look back and think about this episode when I think about this day because I think this is probably, first of all, it's election day. (laughs) So let's get that out of the way. This is one of those elections that is monumental for so many people. And I know this is probably the most important election Sarah and I have ever participated in. And I know that a lot of you are excited and eager to see what the results will be. Just a reminder, we probably won't know today. And a lot of us are feeling anxious and nervous. If you are feeling that way, I feel you 100% and it's okay. But I hope that you will do some things to take care of yourself as well, whether that's a long skincare routine or making or ordering your favorite meal or binge watching your favorite nostalgic TV show. Do something for you today and throughout the week just to make yourself feel good and feel better. I just feel like there's so much anxiety and so many nerves going into this election that people are trying to figure out ways to cope (laughs) with the fear of the unknown. This is not going to be a politics-free episode. Y'all know that Sarah and I have been vocal about our political views in the past, so we've never shied away from politics here. Um, That being said, we're not focusing on the election and the candidates in front of us for this episode. We wanted to talk about beauty and politics and how they work together, how they drive people apart, how they're used as a tactic and a tool. We found that aspect of of beauty really interesting. And one of my favorite episodes, I know Sarah loves this episode too, and we know it's a fan favorite, is Amanda Montel's episode. If you haven't listened to it, Amanda is a former beauty editor. She's an author and a linguist. And she talked about the linguistics of the beauty industry and how it mimics a cult. And so many of you found us through that episode and also have said that you became fans of Amanda because of that episode. And that really makes us happy because, you know, obviously our content really focuses on edutainment, giving you the real scoop on ingredients and products and launches and all of those things. And of course, we like to be fun and funny, but... Um, We also want you to think differently about beauty. Um, You know, we're journalists and we want to relay facts and interesting stories and history 
And I think that this is an episode that many of you are going to appreciate and learn so, so much from. So like I said, we're not talking about the election, but we are talking politics and how beauty relates to that. So our guest today is beauty writer Arabelle Sicardi. Arabelle is an incredible journalist who writes about beauty, politics, power, and how they all relate to one another. They are going to break down how beauty has played into politics throughout history and today Today they are on the show to share some of their incredible research on these topics. Arabelle is a human encyclopedia. The things that they know, it's incredible. So Arabelle has written for Teen Vogue, uh, Vogue Business, The Cut, Refinery29, Dazed, Allure, and many, many other publications. They are currently working on a nonfiction book titled The House of Beauty, and they wrote the book Queer Heroes, which you can pick up at your local bookstore or bookshop.com. We think you're going to love this episode. It is so educational and very, very informative. We hope that you voted today. We hope that you exercise that right to share your voice and we hope that you take really really good care of yourself until we meet again with a lovely episode on Friday. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy the interview. All right everyone. Hi Arabelle, how are you? Hanging in there. I think that's the best I can do today. How about you? I, I feel you. I feel you. I know that's such a weird question to ask right now, but um, I wanted just to thank you so much for being on Los Angeles today. I love your work. I love what you're doing. And I think that you're going to have this episode's going to be incredibly insightful for our listeners. To kick off the episode, I would love to know what's on your face. Is there one product that you're wearing right now and loving? Right now, I have nothing on my face except aromatherapy mist from Jolique. I think it's the calming blend and some lip balm. That's that's the extent of my routine today. I think probably later on, I'll put on some CBD oil on, on the back of my neck to help with the computer crunchy, crunchiness that happens because we're just perpetually in front of our screen. But right now, I'm pretty all-natural. I, that Jerleek mist, the aromatherapy really, really does like take you down a few notches. It just <laughs> helps calm your senses, kind of makes your shoulders relax a little bit. So I think that's a great product to be wearing today. <laughs> yeah, I forgot I had it in the fridge until literally today. It's been wasting away. And I'm like, where have you been the past eight months? <laughs> Hello. The, the fridge is really sneaky. I have products in there. I'm like, huh, I totally forgot about you. I know people say to put them in the fridge sometimes, but I often forget about them. So don't forget your fridge products, people. Yeah, I have so many sheet masks in the fridge that I forget exist, which isn't a hugely bad thing because it just means that I don't run through them as quickly. But it's always a nice surprise to find them behind the hummus. Yeah. Exactly. So we wanted you on the podcast because of how you cover beauty. Obviously, you know, Sarah and I are both journalists. We come at everything from a journalistic, skeptical viewpoint. And we like to have fun and obviously entertain. And one thing that I really love about the pieces that you write within like the beauty and fashion world is that it really is rooted deeply in research, history, education, and also a different point of view. Normally, we see 
on beauty websites, topics, you know, reviews, launches, profiles, things like that. But your take on beauty is so, so special. And, and that's why I'm personally thrilled to have you on the podcast today. I'm a really big fan of your piece on the cut called A History of Lipstick as Warfare. And you talk about how lipstick delineated class background among a variety of other things in this piece. Can you share some of your favorite factoids about lipstick and what it has symbolized throughout history? Sure. My my partner actually gives me slack for that um, piece because it reads so academic to her because it's, it's so filled with facts. I had way too much fun researching it. Um, I wouldn't say that I have a favorite fact because hoarding knowledge isn't the same as enjoying it. I have this impulse to know more, but it never it never really makes me feel good. It gives me clarity, but not enjoyment a lot of the time. But that being said, I do think a lot about the history of slavery and cosmetics. And so in ancient Rome, there was this, like a slave class called the Cosmetae. And their sole job was to attend to people and do cosmetic practices on them, like plucking their eyebrows or their body hair and moisturizing people and, you know, creating beauty products for the wealthy and the powerful. And there's not a lot about them, but I think about them all the time because I think a lot about unpaid beauty labor throughout history. and. How the fact that you can find that in literally every civilization known to man and probably to aliens too, but we don't know that yet. <laughs> but I think about them a lot and the fact that like, you know, beauty practices, it's like a two-sided coin where it's like for the receiver, it's associated with luxury and with privilege. But then when you think about the people that create this labor for everybody, it's usually associated with poor wages and exploitation and the idea that it isn't skilled labor. And that's been true throughout history. So I think about the cosmetic class all the time and the inheritance of that type of class structure um, all the time. I also think about um, there's like this rumored law that is often mentioned when the history of lipstick is mentioned about um, how Parliament bans lipstick for fear of it being associated with witchcraft. But whenever I've actually looked into this research, that law doesn't, at least I can't find it, it doesn't seem to exist when I've looked through the parliamentary database for UK laws. And I've asked other, you know, historians and beauty nerds to find it as well. And it just ends up it putting us into this wild goose chase about the history of witchcraft in the UK and we can't find that original fact even though it's mentioned in a couple of different beauty books so if you ever hear people mentioned offhand that you know lipstick was associated with witchcraft that may not be true <laughs> I wish that it was in some ways because it's so obviously grotesque and AP history you know like that type of fact but no it's something I think about a lot though that's so funny because I feel like a lot of people love to say it, it almost like as a point of pride, like, oh, I'm wearing lipstick. So, you know, I must have some like witchy elements to me. Um, but the fact that there is no basis for that is is super, super interesting. 
I'm curious, what inspired this piece for the cut? You know, like, where did you get the idea? Was there a certain factoid that you thought, oh, this would make an amazing article? I'd like to do more research on it. How, how did that come to fruition? I think that piece, I was approached to write it because kind of my, my lane in the beauty industry and beauty writing as it is, is kind of this critical approach to how beauty is used in political ways. And it has a lot of history in like the military industrial complex, let's say. I have this kind of tagline, like beauty is terror, which is a reference to Donna Tartt um, dialogue in, I think it's The Secret History. But for me, it does mean literally that beauty is used to incite, inspire fear in people and in marginalized communities. And it's a really good weapon of aesthetics and distraction for people in power. And it's a really good survival mechanism to, you know, protect yourself from terrible things as well. So when I say beauty is terror, I do mean that it can be terrifying and it is a terrible thing for what it's used for. But, you know, it's a tool like anything else and you need to know how to use it. And so for that piece, the editor wanted me to just go in on what I mean by what what beauty is as a terrible source. And it just naturally seemed like a good idea to be like, okay, well, let's think about lipstick through history and find the threads where it was inherently political and political in a way that m might inspired violence or exploitation. And so that's how the piece came about. That's awesome. In the piece, it talks about how the production of certain cosmetics were even halted um, to save chemicals for warfare. I just, there's so many different pieces of this story that I think are so incredible. Must have taken you hundreds of hours, it seems like. I mean, the, the, the care that you put into your pieces is what I really admire and respect about you. And uh, I'm curious, how, how long did it take you to compile all of that information and then turn it into the masterpiece that is that piece. And I know that I'm, I'm probably making you blush <laughs> by calling it a masterpiece, but it's it's truly one of my favorite pieces of beauty writing. Oh, thank you. Well, for that piece, a lot of the, the pieces that I, I write for online audiences are actually just the side effect of the research that I do for my book. So I don't even remember how long it took because I don't delineate the, the amount of research hours that I spend on one piece or another because in general they're all just compiled from notes for my larger projects. For that I think I was at the library probably for a couple of weeks <laughs> which obviously is not a profitable hourly rate but no. when I compound that with the other stuff I use that research for it ends up a little it better but still I couldn't even tell you um I had a lot of conversations with the librarians and it was very helpful I'll say that much for me it was it was probably a couple weeks on and off the type of research that I do that I insert into any of the reported pieces that I write it's it's not even a matter of hours it's a matter of years <laughs> very humbling and scary to think about but it doesn't feel like work to me. This is all stuff that I think about and fall asleep thinking about and wake up thinking about all the time. So the fact that I get to write about it for a job is just a blessing. 
I'm curious as a writer, I was talking to somebody and I am not going to eloquently put this because I'm totally forgetting the name that is tied to this feeling, but we were talking about how the internet has kind of given everybody, it's democratized information, which is a good and a bad thing, meaning because there is so much misinformation on the internet, people that think that they are right but are actually wrong tend to be louder than the people who are educated and continue to keep learning because we're curious people. I was actually talking to a doctor about this because I feel like personally sometimes I'm nervous to publish something that is well-researched, thorough, has had fact checkers, you know, everything possibly that you can think of to make sure that it's in the best shape possible. I still get this kind of like pit in my stomach before it publishes because I feel like I'm constantly on a quest for information and that information is consistently changing, you know, as we move forward in advancements in beauty. Obviously, you know, stuff that's rooted in history can be definitive, but like, do you get nervous before your pieces go live? (laughs) Um, You know, not anymore. Not usually, really, because I mean, in a lot of ways, I had the worst case scenario happen to me very early on in my career, you know, like, I quit my beauty editing job because I didn't feel supported in what I was writing at the time. And it wasn't because my work wasn't fact-checked or supported by my direct editors, but, you know, the speculation was that it was because advertisers were upset with what I had written. And that was never confirmed in public or not, but what was confirmed or in public or not doesn't matter when the result was that I didn't feel safe or supported for what I had written at the time, which wasn't even in the scheme of things in hindsight, it was not even revolutionary. I was being critical of an advertising campaign and pointing out the hypocrisies of that campaign in a larger context. And at the time, that type of criticism was seen as, you know, firebrand, revolutionary, because we didn't really have a lot of high profile media platforms to have that type of critical conversation about beauty. And to be frank, like beauty advertisers are really coddled by the publishing industry because of how much the publishing industry magazines especially, thrives and survives on their money. So we haven't really been able to be as critical as consumers are about these brands because they are literally the ones that pay for our existence. And that piece was kind of me testing the waters to see how critical I could be at the time, being a beauty editor at a publication. And the test was that I could not be that critical. (laughs) Surprise. I could have, you know, I could have stayed at that job. I could have kept my head down and churned out a bunch of different pieces to satisfy the job requirements in a way that would make me feel safe and supported. But that wouldn't have let me maintain my integrity about what I believed in and what I was essentially hired for. You know, I was hired for my beauty writing as a space of critical and political thought, that is what gave me an audience that made me valuable as a writer. And so when that's put into question, I don't need that publication as much as they need me. And so I left 
because I could, because I was young enough to be able to do so without it really affecting my daily life, because I could go back on my parents' health insurance, and I had enough saved up from being a freelance writer for, you know, five years before then, when I was in high school, basically. When I was in college, I was freelance writing. So I had a tiny bit of safety net, and also the visibility of this whole fiasco happening for me to be able to leverage that to do things on my terms. And I've been freelance ever since. I've turned down jobs to go back into a more traditional work environment. And it's never been a difficult decision for me to make because I never want to have to say yes on a term that doesn't feel safe to me and what I hold close. And what I hold close is not, you know, making sure a huge conglomerate feels like I am giving them the clicks they need to make another billion dollars this year. It is to make sure that the people that I write for, who are queer, people of color, marginalized, the chronically ill, the disabled, the people that never get to see beauty writing that takes that stuff into account. I write for that group of people, the people that I love and am, am held by every single day of my life. I'm not writing for the conglomerates. They have enough people writing for them. <laughs> so, yeah. So for me, I'm like, I am not afraid because I've done my homework. I've walked the walk and I stand by what I write. And if people get pissed off by it, then I'm doing something correctly. And if they don't, then, you know, I'm just going to keep going and try something else. That's all. I mean, you have incredible integrity. Um, I remember when that happened and I was like, holy shit. Okay, so on that note, I'm curious, in your research, I'm sure there's not a lot that surprises you, but in your research, were there any brands that you were surprised uh, to learn, share su uh, political support or I guess just support in general for certain candidates or maybe even certain causes? Well, you know, my general position is that I'm generally disappointed, but not surprised. <laughs> but I, I think it's important to like understand what we mean by association. So it's not surprising to me anymore when a brand, you know, donates a portion of proceeds to a charitable organization because charitable organizations can can ostensibly position themselves to be apolitical. Like you would assume that all parties, all political parties want people to be able to vote. So a brand choosing, you know, a company that, or like an organization that helps getting voter turnout higher, that makes sense. That is good because it weighs both sides of the line. And I'm happy when I see brands, you know, devote more of their resources to, you know, kind of apolitical organizations. But for me, I'm interested in what the executives of the board and the people that run the brand, how they spend their money that they've made from profits from those beauty companies. And that's where the story gets really interesting and sticky. Because, you know, Estee Lauder, the brand got into hot water from their own employees earlier this year for Ronald Lauder, who's I think the chairman emeritus, he's like, you know, the, the heir of the Lauder fortune. His, his family, obviously, he's a lauder of the lauder family. 
he is well known for being a major political donor for the Republicans, lifelong Republican. I have individually gone through every single political receipt that is open to the public record for what he has spent his entire career because that's not hard to find. And I can probably list all of his non-Republican donations on both of my hands and have fingers left over. So for him, he is a conservative major funder and he has been for years. And the employees of Lauder were, you know, understandably kind of upset because they wanted to feel more represented by the company that they worked for and they wanted him to step down and also to fund more nonpartisan campaigns and also Black Lives Matter. And um, Lotto didn't step down. He's still there. And they did pledge to donate more. And they, they made a lot of actually specific concerted efforts to improve the diversity and equity within the Lotto system. But, you know, recently, as in earlier on in October, maybe a couple months after this whole hoo-ha happened, he donated another couple million to specific local Republican races. And that type of stuff is very interesting to me because it really makes you think about what we mean by accountability in the beauty world and what we want our, our money to, you know, fund and where the delineation is between the brand and the people that create and run the brand. You know, would I be this obsessive or critical about the money in beauty and politics if the people running it were democratic? Yeah, I would still be that because I'm interested in how beauty and power are interconnected and what type of things are funded. There are plenty of beauty brands that donate hundreds of thousands to you know, more, quote, democratic, partisan organizations. But the scale of the difference is actually, it's like multiples. There's far more money on the Republican side of this line than on any on anything else, because they do have more funding. And there's, you know, the Uline founders are the biggest political funders on either side of the aisle, or like one of the top five, and they have been for many years. And not a lot of people know that, but even less people know that Uline, everyone in beauty pretty much uses Uline because that's where all of the boxes come from for shipping. So think of literally all of the packaging stuff that we use and that we we throw out and we recycle and how what brands ship their products in. Oh, you know, the majority of that is Uline. And they are hyper-conservative, transphobic funders. They have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on actual commercials that were criticized for being transphobic. And they they wanted to put Scott Walker into his position. And they just, they're, they're interesting. I'll say that much. And to understand that aspect of what beauty also pays for, it's not just specific beauty brands. It's other parts of the global market that beauty pays into and is affected by. That type of stuff really fascinates me. And when I found out about Uline, I was just like, I went on a spiral. I called up beauty companies and asked them about their packaging and had a lot of conversations with founders about 
what alternatives that they had. And a lot of them, they went to alternative companies for their products, but there's so few affordable alternatives because they flood the market so much that after a couple months, they just went back to using Uline because they had no other option to stay within a margin of profitability. And, you know, that's what I think about. Like, what are the options when every option's bad? Yeah, exactly. Um, I do love that you touch on the fact that, like, you would be just as interested if the donations were going to, you know, Democratic candidates, Democratic roles, things like that. That's what journalism is. It's not just one side or the other. You are inspecting both sides and how that power interplays into the beauty industry. I think it's incredibly fascinating and I love that this is your beat and that you've really taken it on. I'm curious about aesthetics because I think when we think of women in politics, we normally, honestly, I mean, I think before the past four years, we really just thought of maybe first ladies, right? Or Hillary Clinton or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm thinking of somebody that's maybe not super involved in politics, doesn't really think much about it. They think of how a first lady looks and how put together she is. And I, I think our listeners are really curious, like, is there a specific look? Like, is, is there a, a way a woman is supposed to look um, in terms of political affiliation or um, how she's connected to a campaign? Has makeup or hair or fashion ever, you know, destroyed somebody's campaign or ruined something because of it? <laughs> if only it were that powerful when we really wanted it to work. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so there's a fashion historian. Um, she's at Parsons. Let me find her name. Rhonda Gerlich, I think. I, I may have mispronounced her name. But she has a a coined a phrase called pink politics which is when you know women are using like the arsenal of glamour as a political tool and so there's a lot more women at least in this cycle of electoral politics that are you know using aesthetics in a very individualistic way that a couple of years ago maybe even less than 10 years ago women weren't really permitted to do because there's this really rigid framework of respectability and professionalism that women in politics, but women in any really professional working space has to deal with. And it's, you know, you don't want to be too loud. You want to be formal. You don't want anything distracting. You don't want anything that's construed as too fun for the seriousness of your, your work. And a lot of women are trapped by that cage. You know, Hillary Clinton has always been one of them. There's like a long history of how unlikable she is for this thing or another thing. I mean, yeah, that thing alone. Um, and like, there's plenty of criticism about AOC and the fact that she's really unapologetic about her lipstick, her, her hair, and, you know, just her choice to be resilient and find joy in accessorizing and creating joy in this space where women aren't supposed to find joy there it's you know people consider beauty as this um you know this this fun kind of worthless thing that's just a trinket in people's lives but she and i think a lot of other younger politicians that you know came around in the past couple of years they understand that it's a source of identity and pride 
and you need to be able to represent your people when when you're actually literally representing them in a political realm so she does because she chooses to wear like Bronx and New York based black designers a lot and you know Ilhan Omar and all of you know these younger hungry women politicians they engage actively in this conversation about their identity because if they don't, someone else is going to write that narrative for them. People are going to accuse them of looking like, you know, a sick person, a terrorist, dis- like disrespected, and all of these things that are flung at them constantly. So the fact that they have taken ownership over their identity and been like, yes, I'm going to wear hoop earrings. Yes, I'm going to wear this hot pink or this red lipstick. Yes, I'm going to wear this Telfar bag. What about it? Do you have a problem? use your words, tell me why this is bad, and we'll talk about it, you know, that makes people take a step back and realize that they can't write everyone else's story. And that, and knowing that is a very powerful tool. I I keep thinking about AOC um, on the cover of Vanity Fair, and how on Twitter, which is a dumpster fire like 99% of the time, (laughs) but um, connected me to you, so it's not that bad, (laughs) but... Um, uh, it's funny because people could not stop talking about the fact that she wore like a $2,500 pantsuit that was then gifted to her. And it's almost like people just don't want women to be successful. It's, it's not almost like it is. People don't want women to be successful. <laughs> and and the, the excuses that I saw about her appearing on the cover of a magazine wearing expensive clothes was just... It was absurd, you know, like people don't get to keep the clothes that they wear (laughs) on, uh, you know, on the covers of magazines. And there are stylists for that reason. People come in and they have a creative direction that they want to go and and then designers provide the clothes. And then from there, you know, the the subject of, you know, the cover may get a say so on what they're wearing or what they're not. But most likely there is a direction going forward. And I'm sure AOC had a lot of input on, you know, the clothes she felt comfortable wearing and what aesthetic she wanted to fit but she was provided nice designer clothes for the cover of this magazine and she had to give them all back she wasn't allowed to take them home but one of the brands generously gifted her that pantsuit and you would have thought that you know she was like laundering money or something it was incredible the narratives that people were coming up with as to why it was a bad thing that she appeared looking good on the cover of this magazine I just wanted to throw that in there because it's it's top of mind and it happened recently (laughs) totally no it was absurd whenever I saw that terrible hot take I was just like you are completely misunderstanding the very politics that you're trying to point out she's failed like the idea that you know, Democrats or socialists or, you know, poor people or like black and brown people cannot be seen wearing nice things. That's, that's, that's fucked up. And that's just like bad politics. The whole idea of like socialism and at least the GSA version of socialism is that you, you demand your bread, you demand working living conditions, but you demand a rose too. You demand beauty and the idea that you can have joy and not just be the product that needs to make labor happen. Like you are not just what you work for, you are what you love and what you want to do. And those are different things. And so when people are like, oh, you're wearing something nice. Oh, oh, you have an expensive TV in your house. Gotcha. 
you like capitalism, like, that is a terrible argument to make. Because it's like, you don't even understand that you can be better than the work that you do and that you shouldn't have to suffer for a thousand hours to have a nice thing. It's just, it's sad. But there was a really good um, piece on, on this very topic written by Tressie McMillan Cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on Medium, I think. I'll, I'll send you the link so you can post it with this. But she has this a really good quote. I love all of her writing about beauty. But she says um, that the worldview, which is the dominant one, is that beauty is seen as the only legitimate capital that women are allowed to possess. But beauty is supposed to serve power's interests. When beauty occurs in an unruly body, such as non-white person's body, then it is an existential threat. And like, yeah, exactly that. People, they see AOC and they see difference and they see a difference that's really beautiful and they get pissed off that that, that beauty doesn't serve like the, the conservative viewpoint. But you don't see people like, it's just, it's just, it's absurd. The whole argument. And I'm just like, I can't let let AOC wear whatever she wants to, and please learn how magazines and photo shoots work before you open your mouth. <laughs> exactly, I think I might have said that verbatim on Twitter. I'm like, let's lay this out um, because it's clear that the person that tweeted this did not understand it at all. And then she doubled down on it, and I was like, wow, you really are just going hard in on your bad idea. I know it was. So embarrassing. It was so sad for her. What does like a politician's makeup hair or uh, you, you've kind of covered this, especially with AOC, but what does their makeup hair or even like their fashion choices say about them? Like when we talk about red lipstick, like I feel like the most common discussion around red lipstick is like pick yourself up, put yourself together and put on some red lipstick or like when you're going into a job interview, put on some red lipstick. Um, you know, are there different shades that mean different things? Does like slicked back hair mean something different? Well, a lot of that has to do with what marketers have told us any of this means. So instead of going into like what red indicates or what not to wear in a job interview kind of thing, I want to point out this one moment in history where it was like so clear that it, it changed things in a really big way. So I'm, I'm sure you you have as a, a journalist that you've you've heard of like the the Nixon and Kennedy debate and how the makeup in that conversation like swung the convo. But for people that don't know, the first televised presidential debate was in 1960 between um, Vice President Nixon and then Senator Kennedy, JFK. And Nixon at the time was the favorite to win, and he was already like vice president and had all of this experience. But Kennedy was younger and, you know, photogenic and a uh, total babe. And at the time, um, Kennedy and Nixon were both invited to do, like, um, pre-production meeting before the debate to do prep and to, you know, talk about what they wanted to look like and stuff. But only Kennedy decided to do it. And when the debate came around, Nixon was recovering from, like, an illness and he looked pretty pretty crappy on stage and he actually this is debated he either rejected getting makeup done or his makeup was really bad and Kennedy he had his own team come in and do his makeup right before the debate and he was young and looked prepared and you know more presidential so to speak and after the debate the the points completely switched to prefer Kennedy 
and he won by one of the most narrow margins in history. And Ken, uh, Nixon had a 6% lead, I think, 6% or 6 points lead over Kennedy before that debate. And that changed everything, that one debate, because Nixon was sweating, he didn't look that great, and people were concerned about his, his readiness for the position. And Kennedy, you know, he looked ready. And that is one example that a lot of historians use as this point where aesthetics does make a difference completely. Even if it's the smallest difference, it can change everything. Totally. But, you know, I mean, now we have, now we got Trump. <laughs> so we have a different conversation about what, what aesthetics and power can mean. But it's, it's still there. <laughs> that one example. Exactly. That's an incredible example. Um, you did talk about marketing. <laughs> You're like, well, what are what are lipstick colors marketed to you as? I feel like you have to understand color theory, right? Like there's no way that you report on this stuff and not understand like what red meant at a specific point in time or what hot pink meant. Let's say, you know, this is the most cliche example out there. But what if a listener is going on a job interview and they want to appear more confident or more competent? Is there anything like throughout history that teaches us or has, you know, been marketed to us one way or the other? You know, the history of red lipstick has meant so many things across time and across context. If you want to know about how it is linked to politics, yes, it is linked to the suffragettes and like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and this idea that red meant that you didn't take other people's shit and they wore it on their a lot of their initial protests kind of as this way to scandalize people because red lipstick at the time meant that you were a sex worker and disreputable and they were like, we can be powerful and controversial and also wear red lipstick and you know you need to get over yourself so there's that context and elizabeth arden she also made her own kind of propaganda lipsticks that were different kinds of red so there was victory red um which was around world wars and it was kind of just to you know keep the spirits up and then she's also named lipsticks after the women's rights movement then you have other lipstick colors. You can actually kind of predict what type of lipstick is going to be named what by the type of shade. So like darker purples and like darker browns, they tend to be, you know, named after more grungy things or, or like urban cities and stuff like that. And reds tend to be named, um, you know, something more like scandalous or powerful and stuff like that. And there's a book that actually breaks this down a little bit um, and it has a, a lot of different lipstick facts and it's literally called Lipstick. A lot of different beauty journalists refer to this book on a pretty regular basis. It's very fun. I do love the book. The only qualm I have about that book is she does not cite her sources to the extent in which I would prefer it. So you can't really trace where she found her information from. You just have to take it. Oh, at face value. And for me, <laughs> I always want to know everyone's sources. And so I wouldn't necessarily take everything in that book as as 100% true. But when she breaks down the history of shade ranges, 
I do think she's onto something there. Okay. So well, I am a bad beauty journalist. I need to read this book immediately. I've got to make sure I find it. It's very good and cheap on on like half.com or whatever. It's not. It's not. Um, I think it might be out of print, but it's very cheap regardless. And well worth the like eight dollars it probably is (laughs) perfect you recently wrote a story of the government politicizing ugliness for grow by ginkgo what sparked the inspiration for this particular piece and can you explain to the listeners what exactly the piece is about that piece i was actually approached to write it by ginkgo because of our previous relationship because i am curious about ginkgo's relationship to beauty because they actually create um, synthetic fragrance ingredients from at like extinct archives and I thought that was super cool and so I knew about their work in the beauty industry for years and they approached me because they wanted my perspective on the contributions that and the relationship that synthetic biology has to the beauty industry and it's not really a pleasant one to be honest because the syn- synthetic biology's origins are basically the eugenics movement like you it is fundamentally editing genetic material and you don't really like you you can't legally in every single country edit living human beings that's not on the table for the majority of places but the conversation still stands that if you can edit people what would you edit them to be like? And what does that mean for beauty and politics? So for me, I wanted to write about the origins of the eugenics movement and how that type of agenda has played out in the legal space across America over many, many decades. Because there were these things called ugly laws, which were you can find as early as the... 1800s that basically penalized people that had visible disabilities or were visibly unhoused or sex workers basically they're the origins of vagrants vagrancy laws and if you were like a war veteran or you were homeless you could get fined and run out of a city for for just being that way and the government wasn't really about to help support you they were going to fine you and get you out of the way because you were a blight on society in their eyes. And those laws are also linked to immigration policy because, you know, the origins of Asian immigration in America aren't exactly hugely positive. You have Trump saying things like like the China, the China plague or, you know, the Asian flu or whatever he's saying COVID-19 is right now but that's not new that actually is just really old like nativist so to speak ideology about anti-Asian sentiment and it's the basis of all of the like Asian exclusionary acts that were that were part of American immigration for a really long time because Asian women weren't really allowed into the country for a while because it was assumed that we were all, um, you know, sex workers or criminals. And the only people from China that were allowed into the country were people that were going to work on the railroad. And that was the case for a really long time. And it established the idea that you needed to have like a certain amount of whiteness 
to be worthy of being here and that people of color were unhygienic and, you know, plagues on society. And those laws were pushed by the very same people that created eugenics laws and were funding eugenics policy. They're the same group of people because they ultimately mean the same thing, that you have to be a wealthy white person to be of value. (laughs) So that piece just talks about the correlation between all of those laws and what the what they've left us today and what type of organizations and communities um, actively work against those policies because while there's no more ugly laws currently in existence the last one that was written as such was removed in i think the 80s right around the same time that the ADA became a thing. And the ADA was fully created because of all of the power of the disabled community fighting for legitimacy and for the right to not be discriminated against in, you know, America. But it took literally many generations for protections to exist for the disabled community. And it's still, it's, we're still fighting for policy that protects, that protects disabled people and otherwise marginalized people based on their appearance and based on their physicality. So you can hear about stuff like the Crown Act, which is really cool. And it, you know, it tries to protect people against discrimination based on their hair, based on braids, basically, um, because a lot of people a lot of black women, they get discriminated against for the type of hair that they wear into job interviews. And you, there used to be, and I think there may still be policy in the military about what kind of hair you can, you can wear. So we still have different laws in, on a federal and local level that determine what you should look like and how your body should be in society. And those aren't new. They're based on these very old, very messed up laws that have been around forever. And if we're going to understand how to approach them, I think it does make sense. And which is why I wrote the piece for us to understand the history of these things and how wide their reach is, because you can't figure out how to kill something bad until you figure out where the roots are. So I can't wait to read this. You can pre-order the issue now right and it comes in December yes yes it looks so beautiful so I hope it's a good December gift when it arrives yes it it does look gorgeous um I'm gonna include the the link to the website so you guys can pre-order that and read it what is your advice for people who want to show their support with their dollar I feel like there's so much information that sometimes it can feel completely overwhelming for people and also because People just don't even know what they're like, well, should I even be buying beauty products at all? I think my advice would be to sit with yourself, remain calm and don't freak out. And also know that there are no heroes in this situation. We are all learning and doing the best that we can. So I encourage you, yes, to follow medical professionals and like actual experts that have certifications in the industry to learn about the stuff that they know that they went to school for. 
but also to know that you're never going to be done learning about this if you're really going to be curious and it's okay to sit with your knowledge and figure out what to do with the products you already have so yes i encourage you to like read up about the retailers and the brands that you buy from but you don't necessarily need to boycott them you you can learn where to buy alternate options yes but you don't need to throw out stuff and create more waste use up the products that you have learn about more sustainable options and figure out how to live a life that it has a longer arc that isn't as reactionary and that builds towards a better world. It doesn't mean that you throw out everything you have that's problematic and start fresh with new options because those options may not be affordable or accessible to you immediately. And that sucks, but that's completely understandable. And you shouldn't have to feel bad for wanting to do the right thing because you may not have every option available to you. And beauty is not necessarily a democratic thing. We know this. All you can do is keep learning and find people that support your idea of what beautiful means to you and to figure out the long-term game for what you want out of beauty. That might be replacing some types of products with, you know, different kinds of those products. It might mean switching your favorite shampoo to a different one if you like it. And it might mean learning more about how to recycle the beauty products you have. Like you can mail in your used beauty products to TerraCycle if you want. Um, you can save all of them and do it all at once. You might want to make your own beauty products. There's so many different ways of changing your routine and your impact on the world, but it's never going to be just up to you. So you don't have to feel like a hero or like the sole person saving the world because that will make you feel so hopeless. What we have to do is to learn together and to figure out how to come together in solidarity with other people that are affected by these things and make sure that brands and governments hear about what harms us and that they can figure out how to make their changes because you know, the top six polluters are not individual people, they're companies, so you can change as much as you want in your routine and break your back, but it's never going to be just up to you. So don't feel doomed. You have to work together with so many other people to make a difference. And that can feel really tiring, but it can also feel so much less lonely when you think about it that way. You're never going to be alone. People care just as much as you do. So that is my advice. Excellent, excellent points made. Thank you for saying that. I think everybody kind of just collectively sighed <laughs> with relief <laughs> by that response. <laughs> I hope so. What's next for you? What are you working on? I know you're working on your book, but is there um, a place we should go to find you? Like what, what can we do to support you? Thank you. Well, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, which is just arabellasicardi.substack.com. It's called You've Got Lipstick on Your Chin. It doesn't mean anything. It just references the fact that I always have lipstick on my chin. Um, and I, I cover beauty politics and what I'm reading and what products I'm using on that. And I'm also, when my book is closer to publication, going to be releasing kind of like behind the scenes details or snippets from the book in that. And obviously when I have a pre-order link, it will be there. It's not. I'm not at the stage in which there is a pre-order link. I wish I was, but <laughs> obviously when my book is out, I would love to come back on the pod 
and to gossip all about stories that are in it. And I'm so excited for everyone to figure out, you know, the future of beauty with us together all at once. But, you know, it's going to take some time. Got to finish the book. <laughs> as much speed and positivity as possible for getting that book finished. You are more than welcome. When you do your book press tour, please consider Los Angeles. Where can we find you on social? You can find me at Arabelle Sicardi on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, long live RIP Tumblr. I'm probably still there. And um, you can always reach out to me via email as well. But for the most part, I like to hang out in my newsletter. So see me there. Amazing. Um, Arabelle, you're fabulous. You're fabulous. Thank you so much for joining me today. (laughs) Y'all know where to find us on social media. It's Los Angeles Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can go to our website. It's LosAngelesPod.com. We'll have Arabelle's episode there along with all of the different links that I said that I would include in that post so you can easily just click away and read all of her good stuff. Um, And you can find us on Facebook too. Join our Facebook group. That's where all of the glam Angelinos live and give recommendations and support to each other. So if you're on Facebook still, join the group, hang out, and we will talk to you on Friday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 